you're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dunnett. That's right. You're tuned in to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas, from ESPN.com, and sitting alongside me, as always, from MMAJunkie.com and USA Today, it's Ben Folks. Uh, ben, we're going to kind of pull a fast one on the listeners this week. Uh, do you want to explain what we're doing and, and, and why? Or, or Well, first of all, I think it deserves to be noted that what we're not doing is but what a bunch of other MMA radio shows are doing this week, including a two-week-long podcast that shall not be mentioned. We're not taking the week off. No, we're not. We're here. We're queer. Get used to it. Yeah. We're doing the damn thing. We're not just saying, oh, there's no major events last weekend or this weekend, so uh, you know, we're just going to run our old stuff, run some My Love Lucy reruns, call it a day. No. We're here. We are doing it, and we are going to find a way to trudge through this damn thing. Besides, for us to take a week off, there would have to be some best of for us to run <laughs> that's true whereas i think we all know no there really isn't no. anything to speak of it's just some that's not as bad as the other stuff so which is not as catchy that's right so what we're going to do this week in absence of almost anything worth talking about is uh sort of an impromptu all questions answered episode of the show uh, which we've done in the past where uh readers submit they, their questions as they do every week to our website comainevent.com and uh, and we answer them. We answer as many of them as we can during our one-hour time slot. Uh, normally, we announce this before we do it because we like to give people the opportunity to submit their questions, knowing that they'll have a good chance to get answered on the air. This time, we're calling an audible. We're just, yeah. just going to do the damn thing without even announcing it. I think the way for people to take this is you never know when in all questions considered uh, episodes going to come up. So you just got to act like it all the time. That's right. Just stay on your damn toes. Stay on your A game. Stay on the grind. <laughs> That's right. You could probably make an MMA themed t-shirt yeah. about embracing the grind. That's the lesson or, here. Or something. Uh, anyway, before we do that, though, Ben, last week we promised that we would announce the uh, the rules and regulations for the co-main event podcast theme music competition, which I guess starts right now. Boom! Yeah. Uh, uh, and we're going to put a post up on the website tomorrow. It'll be Tuesday. That sort of outlines this further. But uh, let's talk about it a little bit. The contest is sort of self-explanatory. We are giving the listeners, many of whom appear to have musical talents. Almost all of whom. From what we can can, can tell, uh, the chance to come up with a new theme music for the podcast. Uh, and depending on the quality of entrance, who knows? Maybe we'll just use it forever. Maybe yeah. it'll be the new all-the-time theme music for the podcast. Yeah, and uh, which then we will own all rights to, and you're basically screwed. We should also say if we get a bunch of stinkers... We reserve the right to just not name a winner, right? Yeah, but we'll still would, send people that would some be a prizes. Dick move on our part. It will be like the uh, Pulitzer Prize <laughs> Committee for fiction last year. They opted not to award a, but didn't a they, winner. Didn't they even do a, a more dick move by saying like, "Here were the people that were considered"? Yes, and no, we they chose none of them. They released the nominees for finalists, and they were like, "Yeah, we're not going to give one out." Yeah, so. that's an extra little turn of the knife. But it does seem like we have so many listeners who have musical talent. But I don't want the other people who you know say they don't have a one man heavy metal band. Uh, I don't want them to feel discouraged because hey, maybe it's you. With a ukulele sitting around in your studio apartment singing a song about how we got to face the pain and step to this. And it turns out to be awesome. You never know. That's right. And let's do this. We're going to, so we'll run this, uh, this music competition. And then when we get done, we'll just turn around and we'll do another white elephant essay contest pretty much back to back. So we appeal to people who don't have a musical act. The few, the two or three listeners that we have that appear not to be involved in an ongoing musical act. And we have some legitimately good prizes this time to give away. Yeah, we got tons of shit to give away. Anyway, we're going to put this on the website tomorrow, but here are a few uh, short guidelines to follow if you plan to enter the co-main event podcast theme music competition. Number one, it must be original. Don't download a Prince song off the internets and send it to us thinking we're not going to notice. I mean, do do that because we will enjoy that. But don't expect that to win you the contest. Number two, if you do enter, uh, don't send us anything that's going to get us in trouble with the law. This goes out, especially for you DJs out there. We're not going to be able to use something that has like a recognizable sample. Uh, so don't 
use under pressure by Freddie Mercury and David Bowie. Again, do that because we will enjoy that, <laughs> but don't expect to win that way. The the other guideline and maybe the most important one, it has to be short. I don't know if you've heard the current co-main event podcast uh, theme music. You have if you're listening to this show, actually. Uh, but you, if you've ever given it a close listen, you'll note that it's short. Uh, we usually start talking about 15 seconds into the show because we don't want to be one of those podcasts. And there are many of them that have like a five-minute long introduction there's like a ring bell, like the sound of a – sounds like somebody's flipping around on their radio yeah, dial. A and crowd roars. Bruce Buffer says something yeah. and then – So there's the sounds of somebody like hitting a heavy bag or something. Yeah. You know the deal. Yeah. So don't do that. But uh, we'll post that stuff on the website like we said and uh, then we'll get this started. We'll, we'll Maybe we'll give like three weeks. What do you think? Two that's or three not, weeks a, as a – Sounds like a reasonable time. As a time frame, as a deadline for everybody to get their submissions in and uh, – yeah, we'll, we'll we'll share some stuff with the with the listeners, and then eventually we'll pick a winner, unless we get nothing but stinkers. Yeah. Which brings me, Ben, as a way of a proper segue to this week's music on the show. Seamless. Which comes to us from listener Zach Nelson and his band Somali Pirates. Somali Pirates? You heard me. Okay. Uh, their music is available on, online at a bunch of different places, and we will put the links to those on the, on the comingevent.com when this episode goes live. But right now, just know that they, you can find their music at their website, SomaliPiratesRock.com. What, what kind of music is Somali Pirates? It's, it's some punk rock. Okay. It's some punk rock music. Actually, they have a, a seven-inch record coming out on the record label that is run by Dave Mandel from Sherdog. Huh. Well, I'm sure that the uh, inscripted child soldiers and the Somali pirates would be really happy to know that they've become fodder for a, a punk rock band. The name appears to be political in nature. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, let's, let's do this. Let's, ask, let's do some questions submitted by readers. Okay. Uh, the first question this week is going to come to us from Darren D., he writes, Nick Diaz went all radio head on us this week for his inaugural war MMA card. The option to donate in the, to the event was encouraged, but the live stream itself was free and ran smoothly throughout the show. Highlights of the night included fans throwing up gang signs for the camera, what, the commentaries, what? commentators discussing donations made in the specific amount of $4.20, uh, <laughs> Nate Diaz getting into a quote kerfuffle with one fighter's cornerman and the ring announcer slash hype man asking if there were any quote cancer survivors in the house so he could toss them war t-shirts. My question, what is Nick Diaz hoping to accomplish with war and can these cards be profitable enough to warrant future events? What are the chances he just says, fuck it, and goes back to fighting in the UFC? Well, I've always thought that there's a good chance that he just says, fuck it, and goes back to fighting in the UFC, just because, just in general, regardless of how well this promotion does. Uh, his track record would indicate that he's not going to make a career out of any one thing and will probably return to the trough that yeah. is fighting in the UFC his track record sooner or later. would also indicate that uh, whenever there's an option to bet on whether Nick Diaz will say, fuck it or not, Best to put your money down on fuck the it. The overwhelming odds say that he will, in fact, say fuck it at some point. Now, Ben, did you watch any of War MMA this weekend or or any time since? Because the live stream is – the video, I guess you say, is uh, it has been available since, since yeah. it, it I've, showed I watched, live. I watched some today. I watched some on the internets today. Uh, I did not watch the live stream. Uh, as you know, I mean, I think I, I, I saw you at a barbecue on Saturday afternoon. That's right. Did I not? Yeah. Um, and also though, I was intrigued by Nick Diaz going with the Radiohead approach of, you know, pay what you think is fair. Right. That actually seems like a very Nick Diaz thing to do, uh, which I thought was kind of cool, kind of a cool move on their part. But what if uh, I feel like what's fair is like half a turkey sandwich? How do I give that to you over the internet? I think you have to use the U.S. mail for that. Uh, You'd well, have to send him a half a turkey sandwich through the U.S. mail. Maybe I sent him a, a Panera gift certificate. <laughs> That's right. right. Uh, the, the 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 thing where you donate money to for however much you think the the show is worth struck me as a cool thing to do, and then it surprised me as I began to actually watch the 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 portion of the show that I actually did watch uh, that the overall broadcast and fights and appearance and production values of War MMA did not see seem to me really in any way influenced by Nick Diaz and or did not seem to be any different or better than, say, your average regional 
MMA promotion. And to their credit, on the on the broadcast, they did say a couple of times, "Hey, this is just a regional MMA promotion." Uh, the MMA and TJ DeSantis in there uh, working the mic. Yeah, and and they did a pretty good job, I would say. But I mean, overall, it felt like you were watching like sport fight yeah. or. Uh, uh, Resurrection Fighting Alliance, which was on Access on Friday, which I took in some of. Um, so it felt like, uh, just your everyday average regional MMA show. And really the only reason that it, it, it seems notable in any way is that Nick Diaz has attached his name to yeah. it. Yeah. And see, that's what I want to talk about because I found a bunch of people on like Sunday and, and today on Monday, you know, they hit me up on Twitter and stuff and on the internet just saying like, Hey, where's all the, Where's the war MMA coverage on MMA Junkie? Why don't you guys have a bunch of stuff on war MMA? And it's like, well, man, that's it's a regional card, really. It's a, it's pretty small time. Like, we look who's on the card, and, you know, Daniel Ninja Roberts is, is probably the biggest name on that card, the biggest name actually fighting, like, on the thing. So it's like the only reason to pay it more attention would be because Nick Diaz's name was, you know, attached is the best way to put it. I mean, he said, I, I read some kind of local report where he was saying, hey, you know, I didn't make all the decisions with this. I okayed some Shocker. stuff. Yeah. Shocker. I know we all sat, we pictured Nick Diaz sitting around filling out the promoter's application, uh, choosing between different canvas colors uh, <laughs> for the ring. You know, I'm sure we imagined him doing all that stuff. But uh, it sounded like maybe he wasn't. Uh, and I guess it worked perfectly for the the people who put this thing together because if they're hoping, hey, all we have to do is get Nick Diaz to put his name on it and it suddenly becomes newsworthy in the MMA media. That worked for a lot of people. Uh, I mean, for me, it just seems like you look at the card and it doesn't stand out any more than the tons of other like regional small-time promotions that we see. Yeah, I agree. I think that they got a, a, a short-term bump over having Nick Diaz involved with the thing, but moving forward, if if they indeed do, more shows. It sounded like that was a little bit up in the yeah, air. So unclear. At the, at the beginning of this week. Uh, they're going to have to invest some money, I think, in bringing in at least Bellator slash World Series of Fighting quality fighters in order to to push the needle at all. I think moving forward, it's, it, the tendency is going to be to view war MMA as just what they said it is, a regional, a regional promotion. And if that's what it is, then there's no real reason for national outlets to really pay it any mind. Especially since at this point, it looks like Nick Diaz put his name on it, maybe put up the money, didn't do very much else at all. Yeah. Which I guess is what we would expect, right? Yeah. If, if we're being honest with ourselves, yes. Uh, our next question comes from Patrick Scott, who writes, I'm sitting here watching War MMA, a Nick Diaz joint, and I am overwhelmed with the feeling we are way too hard on Joe Rogan and Mike Goldberg. And I had no idea how hard it must be to broadcast a fight and not have the ref get in the way all the time. I had no idea that was a thing that could happen. I honestly don't know what my question is. Uh, talk about it. Oh, wow. Thanks for selecting this one, by the way. Well, they, they're all on there, man. Okay. It's not like we did very much selection. Um, okay, first of all, the, the thing that I, I get what you're saying about... Uh, well, I think TJ DeSantis does a good job. And he has some experience doing that stuff. It does remind you when you see other people do it. I mean, you get so used to seeing the UFC's product over and over again that then when you take a step back and see people who haven't been doing it as long or, you know, see a production that, that is just kind of getting off the ground, you do get a little bit more of an appreciation for, hey, this shit is not as easy as it looks. Right. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I always talk about, you know, taking shots at refs and television play by play announcers, not necessarily my cup of tea, just because I think, especially in terms of, of, play-by-play commentating, it's one of those things that looks really, really easy until you try to do it, you know, and then it's it's super easy to come off just looking terrible throughout. And yeah, we do give Mike Goldberg and Joe Rogan a lot of shit, uh, sometimes undeservedly, sometimes deservedly, uh, but those are the, just the guys who are the two uh, highest profile guys in the industry, so they're naturally going to take some flack. You know, the same thing is true of Dana White. He's the most high profile guy in the sport, so... He's going to end up taking a lot of criticism, a lot of which he deserves and a lot of which he probably doesn't deserve. But yeah, you know, probably at the end of the day, it does reinforce the idea that the guys who do it at the highest level are actually pretty good at it. Like not as completely worthless as you might uh, be led to believe if you just read internet yeah. comment sections about well, them. And you know, I remember watching, I can't, maybe it was the second Invicta card. Uh, maybe, well, I think I was at the second Invicta card. Well, no, uh, maybe it's, 
Get it straight. Third or something. I don't know. Get it straight. Whatever. It was the one where they didn't have Moro Ronaldo, and instead they had Julie Kedzi, Molawal, and Boss Rutten, um, which any one of the three of them are a good addition to the broadcast table when it's just the three of them and there's no play-by-play person. There's no, like, you know, professional, experienced broadcaster who knows how to kind of steer the ship that way. Then it becomes immediately obvious why you need that person. But when that person is there, you don't really think about it that much. You kind of take them for granted. Uh, and I think it's especially true of Moro Ranala, who has now moved on pretty much just doing boxing all the time now and doing really well at it, I think. But as soon as, like, he's one of those people who people just, they take him for granted, you know, give him shit on the internet. And then when you see him on a broadcast where you're used to him and he's not there, you really feel his absence. Yeah. You know what's weird to me? One of the things that makes your mixed martial arts broadcast seem real uh, regional, I guess you would say, is having the nobody ring announcer. For whatever reason, that's such a small part of the show. But like when I watch War MMA or when I was watching uh, uh, RFA 8 on Access on Friday, it's like when they cut to the nobody ring announcer and you can kind of tell like they don't 100% have their shtick down. Yeah, that they're probably is rented. A, they're, yeah, exactly. They're, they, they're, they're probably a radio DJ who just figured they would get in there and wing it. And they have a couple of – they try a couple of like corny moves and it doesn't really work out. For whatever reason, when I see that, I'm just like, oh, God. This is going to be terrible. Really? But I and that's like, so – that's like unfair of me. That has nothing yeah. to do with the rest of the <laughs> yeah. show. But yeah. it's still like – it's how I feel when but I watch it. But there's only so many known ring announcers. I know. And that's why and if you do it, you got to get one of those three guys to come announce your I, show. I also feel though like if you go and get like somebody like Tim Hughes who used to do the IFL and now does like World Series of Fighting and he's – you know, he's like the guy you get when you can't get the other people. Um, but he's still kind of known, has been doing it for a while. Then, though, that I think is just enough of a, a connection that, like, that's when I start to see your entire show as, like, the, you, everything you have is the guys you got when you couldn't get the main guys. You know what I mean? Like, I would rather see somebody completely different that I don't know yet whether they're any good or what the hell they've done than see just, like, some guy recycled from, you know, not quite good enough shows. I would go out and get Rich Go-Go Goins, the guy, the local Denver radio personality who did like the first three UFCs. That's who I would get, just for the old school fans. Yeah. Like that's a throwback. Okay. That's actually not what I would do. All right. We can talk about that later. All right. Well, the next question this week comes to us from Ernesto Aguilar. He writes, three fighters, Hanato Babalu Sobral, Seth Petrozelli, and Megumi Fuji announced their retirements this past week. Of, e- of each, what will they be remembered for, but what should they be remembered for? Hmm. Now, see, uh, uh, you, you take someone like, like uh, Megumi Fuji, who I think will be remembered sort of as a pioneer in women's MMA, and probably that is probably how she should be remembered. And to me, will always be like one of those fighters that for years you only heard about in like the Sherdog forums right. b- before the internets just, you know, exploded and 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 there was youtube videos of everybody out there she was like one of those uh you know hicks and gracie almost type fighters that you didn't you never saw them but you just read about how awesome they were online yeah i agree with that and you know i actually talked to uh babalu sobral uh earlier today story by the time you hear this should be up on the website drink uh and uh one of the things that we talked about was you know how do you think people are going to remember you you know, and I think with with Babalu, I think it's a, a trickier one because he's been around for so long and been fought in so many different promotions and, and, and done so many different things. I mean, I'm sure some people are going to be like, yeah, I remember him from when he wouldn't release that choke on David Heath and then got fired from the UFC because of it. Uh, or, you know, I remember him when uh, Tito Ortiz just fucked his name up all to hell during that Affliction broadcast, which was awesome. Uh, and which I still think is on, if you go to Babalu's Wikipedia page and it, under, uh, other names, it still lists Seraldo Babalu, uh, and Sobu Babala. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, when I asked him, like, hey, what would you, what would you think was your best moment in MMA? And he mentioned, uh, the IFC global domination, uh, one night tournament he won in 2003. Uh, where in one night he beat first Trevor Prangley, then Shogun Hua, then Jeremy Horn. Uh, not too shabby. Yeah, not, not too shabby for its day. Not too shabby at all for its day. I mean, still, when you look back on it, it holds up pretty good. And it's like, huh, I had kind of just completely forgotten about that. But I can see how that would be 
an awesome moment standing up. It's weird how you, you think of it sometimes that what we remember these guys for and what they think of themselves for in their minds are bound to be two very different things. Yeah, see, I was going to say getting kicked in the face by Chuck Liddell. I was yeah, going to say, like... he's not going to say that as his highlight. Well, no, he's not going to say that. But 15 <laughs> years from now, like, they're probably putting together best of the UFC highlight reels, and, and that's going to be on there. So, unfortunately, maybe that's one of the things Bobaloo will be remembered for. And then Seth Petrozelli, obviously... Uh, Kimbo Slayer. Yeah, beating Kimbo Slice on... on uh, nationwide network yeah. television. Well, Jared Shaw lost his goddamn mind That's at ringside. Right. And uh, also, uh, uh, the uh, who's the announcer on that? Oh, Gus Johnson. Oh, lost yeah. Lost his mind and screamed about how ro- Rocky is here. Stuff yeah, like that. shook up the world, man. <laughs> well, let's, uh, Ben, we're going to do tips for a well-rounded fight fan this week. Let's do that, and then we'll get back to doing some more uh, listener mail questions. Ben, what's your tip for a well-rounded fight fan this week? Uh, my tip is a documentary film entitled There's Something Wrong with Aunt Diane, uh, which uh, you may remember the the story of uh, the woman who in, uh, in New York where a woman uh, driving a car filled with children on the wrong side of the highway crashed, killed all but one of the children, that killed all three people in the other car, uh, and killed herself. Uh, and then later was discovered she had a bunch of weed and alcohol in her system, even though her family insisted that that was kind of impossible. Uh, and it's a fascinating mystery and a documentary by uh, Liz Garbus uh, done, I'm going to say, uncommonly well. Hmm. All right. uh, so if you like a good documentary, you like a good mystery, and you just like well-made films, there's something wrong with Aunt Diane. I recommend it. Interestingly enough, I am also going to recommend a documentary film, but perhaps one that does not sound like the unbelievable soul-crushing downer that your it, tip for the well-rounded five fan is. It's depressing. I'll say that right now. Uh, I'm going to recommend the documentary Un- Undefeated, which is uh, available on Netflix streaming. Is yours available on Netflix streaming? Uh, I think we watched it on HBO Go. I think it was Uh-oh. on HBO all right, well, well, we'll figure something out. Uh, but, you know, for the listeners out there, if you, like me, are pretty much a sucker for basically any story about a high school sports team overcoming adversity in search of their dreams, boom, I got you covered. That's what Undefeated is, the story of a of an inner-city high school football team uh, from Tennessee. Memphis, I believe. Memphis, Tennessee, who for years have been just terrible and perennial doormats in, in the state high school football scene. And this documentary is about they have this they have one chance to have a good season. And it basically focuses on the trials and tribulations of the coach who leads them uh, in search of their first ever playoff victory. I think it won an Oscar, actually. Really? Yeah. So uh, it's called Undefeated. We will put both of those links up on the website tomorrow in the tips for the well-rounded fight fan post. As for right now, though, you are going to rock out to a little Somali Pirates, and we will be right back with more of your questions. Names will be All right, Chad, digging back into the mailbag here. Next question comes from Brady Carlson, who writes, UFC 162 promos. Whoa, 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 whoa. Brady Carlson? Brady Carlson. The king of listener mail returns. <laughs> all right. <laughs> and all it took was for us to answer literally every single question. Well, we'll see how many we get to. UFC 162 promos have started playing, and they're selling Chris Weidman as the perfect storm to beat the greatest fighter of all time. If Chris Weidman beats Anderson Silva, will it be because of the matchup of skills or because of father time? I am a giant Silva fan. Actually, that's a different person. I think he means he is a giant Anderson Silva fan, not a giant Silva fan, because there's no such thing as one of those. Uh, And have been bracing myself for his eventual defeat. It has to come sometime, right? No one stays perfect in the UFC. So what does that mentality say? Silva's been labeled the best for so long that to argue it seems pointless. But if, or when, a challenger beats him, I'm already chalking it up to age and the law of averages. Am I selling Weidman short or overselling the champ? 
Yeah, well, I mean, in terms of whether or not it's father time or a bad matchup of styles, I think it would probably be a little bit of both. I feel like I've, for one, have been kind of waiting for Anderson Silva to show up and look old for about three years now. Yeah. Uh, ever since the guy was about 35, because you do start to feel like, you know, he couldn't possibly do this forever. And yet, so far, aside from uh, dodging the bullet against Chael Sonnen uh, a, a few fights ago, he hasn't really showed any signs of of aging, really, or not being the same guy. You know what I mean? So uh, if Weidman is to emerge victorious, if, if that happens when those guys fight here, uh, then I think you'd have to mostly chalk it up to uh, Chris Weidman's style, because I do think that, that his style makes him sort of a bad matchup for Anderson Silva. And uh, he definitely has the tools, I think, in the toolbox to beat him. I don't know if that will actually happen, but but he does have the potential to create some pretty uh, interesting problems for Anderson Silva. And yet, you never know, because the dude is, what, 38 now. So you always, uh, you always expect that this could be the one where he shows up and, and doesn't, doesn't look, you know, like the, like he comes from a generation in the future of yeah. fighters who has traveled back in time to teach the rest of us how to fight. I think a lot of it would depend, like as far as big picture, how he took it would depend what happened after that. Because it's like if he, if he lost to Chris Weidman and then, you know, had a rematch and he lost again, or if he took another fight after that and lost again, then, you know, the kind of the same thing that happened to Fedor. When Fabricio Verdum submitted Fedor, it was like, holy shit, Fabricio Verdum did the impossible. And then... Fedor started losing some fights after that, and it was like, oh, okay, Fedor just fell off. That's what happened right, there. Yeah. Uh, so, like, our our image of it changes as, as time goes by. And I think that would probably happen with Anderson Silva. If he just lost once to Chris Weidman uh, and then resumed beating the shit out of other people, then people wouldn't say, okay, Chris Weidman had the, the style or Chris Weidman was the guy to beat him, uh, the perfect storm, that kind of thing. If he lost to Chris Weidman and then lost his next, you know, three out of the next four, then people are going to say Anderson Silva got old. Yeah, do you think if he loses to Chris Weidman that he will soldier on in the cage? I feel like if the day ever comes when he does suffer defeat and lose that middleweight title, uh, I mean, maybe you've got a super fight out there that might interest him with GSP or, or John Jones, but I, it kind of, I feel like he's at the stage in his career where if, he, if, the, if the spell was broken, so to speak, that he might just think about walking away. I don't know. I'm looking through my uh, MMA fighter uh, playbook here. It says if you lose to Chris Weidman, you have an immediate rematch against Chris Weidman. Okay, um, well, there you go. Yeah, that's probably true. If you lose that one, then you talk about retiring, take one more fight anyway, uh, and then retire two years after you should have. That's what it says here in the playbook. Okay, well, I guess that's how we'll go. Yeah. We'll go with it then. Uh, next question this week comes from Chris. He writes, great officiating and stoppage during the King Mo versus Seth Petrozelli fight. Should athletic commissions start to reward their judges with a performance bonus? No. Yeah, that seems like a weird idea to me. And uh, I'm kind of, of of the opinion and have for a long time now that performance-based bonuses are bullshit. So uh, I don't know if I would want to see the, the United States government, as we all know. The, government the long arm of the federal government yeah. is in charge of, of the state athletic commissions, at least according to certain fight promoters, depending on what mood they're in. I don't know if I want to see state athletic commissions getting in that business. Also, on that particular stoppage, it wasn't like it was really a hard one to make. Mo kind of made that stoppage for the ref there. Landed that one huge bomb that just exploded right on Seth Petrozelli's face. Knocked him out cold. And then kind of turned and walked off. So that one wasn't too tough. If it was Mazagati, we'd probably be saying it was horseshit. Yeah. Today. Way to fuck up another one, Mazagati. <laughs> anyway, next question. Next question comes from George Blackburn Powell. Whoa, what? Yeah. Civil Who? War General George Blackburn Powell? <laughs> yes. No, I, I assume he runs an obscure museum somewhere in Idaho. Uh, he writes, Of all the MMA happenings to get me to finally write, this is perhaps a minor and silly one, but for some reason, it got my goat. This is about the Benson Henderson slash USC dress code story this week. By this week, he means last week. Uh, though unnecessary in my eyes, I don't think the dress code is a huge deal. What I found strangely both enraging and mystifying, however, was that the UFC is insisting it isn't a dress code. Quote, there is no dress code to speak of, a UFC official wrote. We simply ask that our athletes not wear shorts or flip-flops at company-related press tours slash media functions. Merriam-Webster online defines a dress code as, quote, formally or socially imposed standards of dress. Are you fucking kidding me? Why he do that? Just saying. 
Wow, yeah. he hit all of them, all the I bases know. there. The, yeah, uh, I am glad that former president of the United States George Blackburn Powell <laughs> wrote this question in because I think that it's kind of a uh, an interesting topic. It seems, it, or it seemed to me last week when the when the announcement came down, a little bit weird for the UFC to impose uh, some sort of a dress code on its fighters. And my very first thought was, well, fuck, man, Dan Henderson's gonna be pissed because. I don't know if you've ever been to a Dan Henderson uh, fight and you've ever been to a, a media pre-fight event, you know that Dan Henderson is going to roll in and flip flops and uh, some kind of shiny workout pants and maybe a, a sleeveless T-shirt, you know? Well, oh, and then one of those flat build baseball caps that the kids wear. Well, I think what, you know, uh, inventor of the submarine, George Blackburn Powell, uh, is actually trying to get at is that it is a dress code, and the UFC is saying it's not. I actually took the position in my Twitter mailbag last week that it's not really a dress code because it's. I feel like a dress code has to be a little more stringent than just like, hey, put on some shoes and some pants, asshole. Like, I don't feel like that's quite a... I mean, that to me, that is the level of like your gas station here, which says uh, in big letters right on the door, uh, no shoes, no shirt, no service. Mm-hmm. Um, that rule is is loosely enforced. Yeah, by no, the way. That, I was going to say that this is like the only gas station in town where I see that, and I I think they're bluffing. <laughs> uh, but I mean, that's basically the level. Like, if that's a if, you know, if the whole no flip flops and shorts thing is a dress code, then so is that. You know, I think that's more of a guideline. Uh, I think you know, it's it's not like hey, shirts and ties and dinner jackets required at all times on on press tours. It's just you know. Try and try and not look like you came in straight off the beach. Yeah, I see what you're doing there, being a little bit ironical, but I, it still qualifies as a dress code. I think if you say your fighters can't show up dressed like Clay Guida uh, all the time, <laughs> and and maybe they kept it loose on purpose because they didn't want to go like the NBA route where you have a dress code and then suddenly every NBA player starts wearing those fake glasses to every press conference. Yeah. Uh, so you're saying you agree with former Secretary of State George Blackburn Powell? A little bit, yes. I feel that 19th century labor leader George Blackburn Powell <laughs> has a pretty good point here. I also, just to reiterate, I think it's kind of a weird thing for the UFC because they've always had this sort of like laid back, casual, edgy uh, persona about them. And for them to suddenly be like, oh, dress code. They, they went well, you, corporate, man. Well, they yeah, went corporate. And you know that I mean, it's not like it's going to get too classy because the dudes are still going to show up in like – t-shirts with glowing skulls and chains and shit on them so look let's not kid ourselves uh certain members of the mma media better hope that they never come up with a no ironic shirts that i bought off the internet dress code or some people might be in trouble yeah including the guy i'm sitting in a room with right now how dare you i'm wearing a t-shirt from a flag football championship city championship you're lucky I'm not also wearing that T-shirt. You, they uh, don't just give those out. No, well, they, they do I mean, not. They do, but. they do, but you have to play a flag football game to get one. Uh, the next question this week comes from Bob Phelan. He writes, Anthony Pettis just texted me. He wants the next <laughs> shot at Demetrius Johnson. <laughs> oh, Sorry, bird. John Moraga. If Showtime does indeed take TJ Grant's spot against Ben Henderson at UFC 164, what kind of message does that send? And what should the UFC do with Pettis? That long layoff isn't looking too smart now. And first of all, it seems like people were willing to to humor Anthony Pettis to a point when it was like, okay, he's going to step in there at featherweight. All right. Well, we feel like maybe that might be kind of bullshit, but we want to see the fight enough that... We'll, we'll look the other way on it. Then he gets injured and pulls out of that one, but is like, but I want to go back to lightweight and jump the line there now. That's the one where it's, that's a dick move too far. You know, yes. we, we yes. would let, you can get away with one dick move. And I'm not saying Anthony Pettis is being a dick here. I'm just saying that some might call that action dickish, especially to yeah. TJ Grant, who won like, you know, 27 fights in a row or some shit to, to, to get that shot. Especially since I think you brought this up last week on the show, but that up to this point, we've been led to believe and I guess have no real reason to doubt that Anthony Pettis asked for this himself, you know, that he via he, the magic of text. Message. Yeah, he text messaged uh, Dana White and said, put me in this fight with Jose Aldo. I could see him having a little bit more of a beef if it was something that the company asked him to do. Like they plucked him from the line of lightweight contenders and were like, go down to featherweight and fight Jose Aldo. Then he gets hurt. Then they have to scratch that fight. If I was Anthony Pettis, I'd be a little bit upset about that myself. But because he asked for this fight. It, and it's his injury yeah. that, that, that stopped it. 
Like he's the one who got hurt. You don't get to be like, I'm hurt for this one, but I could be available for that one. So just, you know, slide me on in there and screw the other guy out of it. It does say something a little bit weird about either where the sport is at today or maybe just the body of MMA fans that as soon as this happens, the first thing we think is like, oh, well, it's a conspiracy. They're definitely putting him into this fight with Ben Henderson. Just like, I don't know what that's a commentary on either the fact that that we feel like we've been led down the primrose path before by the fight company or just that maybe the people who like this sport are way too into diving onto groundless conspiracies that one it's that yeah one. no if you look at twitter you'll find that the latter is, is probably true interesting question though i think what do you do with anthony pettis now he's not going to be injured for too very long i think he's going to be out what six weeks something like that and then he'll be able to get back to training so it's gonna it's gonna bring up a, a, an interesting choice for for ufc matchmakers maybe uh joe silva and sean shelby can have a a little battle over the guy about whether or not he's going to go to 145 or go back to 155. Yeah, he, he really does straddle the line. Uh, and shit, their, their it might properties. it might be good to have some uh, some wiggle room there. You never know when you're going to need an Anthony Pettis type guy to step in at either of those weight classes. That is true. Uh, our next question comes from Joe C. Who writes in the context of UFC 161. I was talking to someone who is not so into MMA about the problem with scoring and judges, given all the decisions that happened that night. My friend said something very interesting to me. Why not split up the scoring into categories and distributing the 10 points across those categories? Kind of like they do on the Iron Chef TV show. For example, and this is by no means the solution, the 10 points were distributed into three categories. Three points for stand-up, three points for grappling. I'm not sure if that's a typo or if he's trying to combine grabbing and grappling together, which sounds awesome. Uh, Four points for something else, maybe octagon control. Uh, if the entire match doesn't go to the ground once, then the grappling category, okay, not a typo, grappling category gets a 3-3 tied. This type of scoring will certainly introduce more variation, and therefore, we'll see less of those matches like the Pearson-Robertson fight, where Robertson is given 10-9 in round 3, Pearson 10-9 for rounds 1 and 2, but those are not the same value of dominance. I'm actually giving this a lot of thought because it came from someone outside of MMA, and I almost feel like that's what we need, a fresh set of eyes on this problem. Well, now I'm... I'm I'm going to be honest. I'm confused. Yes, by it's that very email. confusing. It sounds like we're we're uh, arguing for a sort of five by five rotisserie league baseball approach. Where uh, it, I don't know what that is. It's the original fantasy baseball system where like you and I would both have teams and we would play each other and like whoever's team had the most triples that week, I would win the triples category, and then whoever won the most categories oh, okay. would win the game. It seems I like see. that's sort of what we're advocating for here. Uh, I'm not going to say I totally grasped what was going on in the email. Yeah, you look like you were kind of zoning out. We've talked before about how the 10-point must system is maybe not the best uh, method for arriving at who wins an MMA fight that goes to decision. So I think we are going to have to move in a direction at some point where we try to brainstorm some other options. And maybe at that time we can bring this up, uh, whatever it is. Uh, but... <laughs> I don't, know. I don't know. It, it seems to me uh, the same thing that uh, I've heard Dana White say when people bring up the possibility of like a half point scoring system. I would say about like what he says about this, about that. I would say about this, which is that the judges already seem to have a hard time with a much more simplistic scoring system. Uh, introducing one with grappling and uh, you know different categories and different number of points for each category. That seems like there's just no way they don't fuck that up regularly. Like even just adding up the math, they sometimes screw that up. Uh, just adding tens and nines together. I mean, I think if there is a, a easier to implement solution with the 10 point scoring system, is that a willingness to give out more 10 eights and 10 sevens? Uh, because I think that what Joe C hits on here, which is the problem I see with the 10 point must system is that, there we're we're just doing we get in this pattern of like winner that round gets 10-9 unless it was just an absolute ass kicking where it almost ended then it's 10-8 and it makes no difference between the ones where it was a totally even round until a guy got a takedown in the last 30 seconds and the one where one dude clearly dominated the round from start to finish yet didn't come close to finishing it like there has to be more variation in there to to show a difference in scoring between those things and i think maybe the, the solution just could be the judges have to get more comfortable with different numbers rather than just tens and nines. Yeah. And you know, the thing about trying to advocate for a new judging scoring system is these kind of things will, will take a shitload of research before anything actually gets done. I think that especially in MMA, a lot of times we have this tendency to come up with an idea and be like, yes, that's the one that will be great. But the truth is, 
you'd have to see these things in action, whether, you know, whether it be this sort of category scoring system or like an open scoring system or the, the half point scoring system, you would have to put these ideas through their paces for a long, long time before you came up with one that, that seemed like it was going to work actually. Um, but you know, I, I like that he's thinking about it. Yeah. I like that we're out there trying to and brainstorm. We're getting fresh eyes on it. Uh, let's do uh, one more question and then we'll do, are you fucking kidding me? Um, this question comes from David E. Wilson. He writes, settle down now. Here we go again with a few true false questions. Oh, and God. please explain your answers. I think this is David E. Wilson's uh, tagline. It's like his gimmick. In yeah, the, this thing. He, he, this is what he writes us. Oh, and then he says, P.S. I lived in Winnipeg for two years and I stayed in that shithole for a night. I think he must be talking about the, the Mar- hotel. The Marlboro Hotel. Yeah. The worst hotel in. I've ever stayed at. He says, Ben is right. It's a dump. Okay. Yeah. Here are the true false questions. Uh, true false question number one. Fightmaster, Fightmaster, turns out to be better than people thought it would be. True. I'm going to say true, too, but only because the bar is so damn low that all they have to do is put together a good reality show that doesn't just seem like a complete ripoff of The Ultimate Fighter. Yeah. And maybe that sees the end of season one, and I think people will be, it will exceed expectations. Yeah. Number two, Spike is better at putting on MMA than Fox. Um, I don't know. False. I'm going to say false. I think false because uh, I'm, I'm going to say false, not because I think that Fox is necessarily better, but I think we'll feel they're roughly equal. Yeah. And, and it's not that Spike does a bad job. Uh, it typically does a really good job with MMA. I think. And, and the thing with Fox is that the UFC is basically still running that live production of those fights. Um, it's, it's still their production team and, you know, their, their camera guys, guys that are used to shooting, uh, MMA. Um, so, uh, you know, I think as long as you have the UFC team putting together Fox, that's probably going to be the, uh, the pace setter, yeah. so to speak. Last true or false. Roy Nelson fights in the UFC in 2014. True. True. Yeah. I, what else is he going to do? You know what I mean? Uh, join a NASCAR pit crew there. Oh, man, you should maybe become Roy Nelson career counselor. That's a, that's a well, good idea. Someone should. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, Ben, let's do, are you fucking kidding me? And then, uh, we'll get back to doing some more listener mail. Um, this week, Ben, as I mentioned earlier, uh, on Friday night, my wife went out and the baby went to sleep. So I settled down we to, go, watch to watch some, some nude events on pay-per-view. <laughs> I wish sorority uh, sisters six. Instead of Sorority Sisters 6, I watched Resurrection Fighting Alliance 8. That's how you spent your, your night of freedom, huh? Again, I assume you were just hammered drunk. Another independent MMA promotion whose name is just an assortment of three random words. Uh, and as I was watching it, I learned uh, that Jeff the Big Frog Curran had pulled out of his main event fight against Sergio Pettis due to an injury. To his dog. Well, what? Record scratcher. Now, Ben, I'm, I'm still not 100% clear on the details, but it seems that the Curran family dog was injured in some fashion and that Jeff stayed home to make sure that the dog was going to make it. Uh, I think he indicated on Twitter that he did it for his kids, which I guess is admirable. But at the same time, pulling out of a fight due to an injury to your dog, are you fucking kidding me? Wait. Did he actually, like, repair the dog's injuries himself? Because then, if he, like, performed surgery on the dog, then okay. That might be the only situation where it would be okay. Because I feel like if you're pulling out of a fight because of an injury to your dog, that is the point where you just need to lie about it and hope that we don't find (laughs) out. Just be like, yeah, I tore my meniscus, you know? And and then don't come out of the house for a couple weeks. Yeah. Or just like put on a neck brace every time you have to <laughs> yes, leave the house. Yes, go Bobby the Brain Heenan style and just wear a <laughs> neck brace around for a couple months. My Are You Fucking Kidding Me goes out to War Machine, who was victorious uh, in his Bellator bout last week, but who told MMA Junkie Radio, quote, I fight because I can't have a boss. I can't drive in traffic every day and get up in the morning. I can't do a nine to five. I can't do a regular job. That's really why I fight. So what War Machine is telling us is that the way the rest of us live is absolutely intolerable to him, and for that reason alone, he must fight other people in a cage professionally. Stripped to the waist. Don't forget about that. <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding Please, me? Please, I'd like to believe you have more of a reason for being in the sport than just that you don't want to get up and fight traffic. So it sounds like War you can't Machine... get up in the morning. 
<laughs> Come on, no, you can't reasonably expect War Machine to get up in the morning. It sounds like War Machine became an MMA fighter for the same reason that a lot of people become tenured college professors. Ooh. Ouch. Anyway, that's Are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week. We will be right back in a couple of moments with more of your questions from Listener Mail. Do you want to say it? Usually say it. No, you took it, so it's fine now. No, come on. Now I feel bad. Just... Listener Mail. There we go. That's... I felt like your heart wasn't really in it, but it's better than nothing. All right, Chad. Our next question comes from Darcy LeDrew. Okay, I'm ready. Who writes, I am hoping you guys can answer this question for me. I have been an MMA fan since the Forrest Bonner fight of legend, but cannot for the life of me accept that Anderson Silva is or will be the greatest of all time. Huh. I see a once-in-a-lifetime fighter who definitely has world-class striking, but has also blasted through rather mediocre competition over several years. His ego, once claiming only a clone of himself could rightfully challenge him, irks me to no end. Can you two please discuss Anderson Silva as the greatest of all time? Am I just a hater? Please vindicate or crucify me. Well, it sounds like we need to get Darcy LeDrew and Brady Carlson together to do a point-counterpoint uh, on whether or not Anderson Silva is the greatest fighter of all time. I, at this point, I would say he's unilaterally regarded as the greatest fighter of all time. And if he's not the greatest fighter of all time, then I'm not sure who is. That was going to be my point. If not him, who? Yeah, but I think the Darcy... And don't you come in here with some Fedor bullshit after you just said Anderson Silva blasted through mediocre competition. No, right. Yeah, sure. That's that's probably a valid point. Um, But I think Darcy LeDrew makes a, a solid point that, that at least some of Anderson Silva's wins have come over somewhat mediocre competition. However, I think that a lot of his uh, legend, so to speak, is based on... Uh, not necessarily those those uh, those terrible fights that he had against guys like Talos Latis and uh, Patrick Cote, but uh, you know the highlight reel shit that we've seen him do to guys like Vitor Belfort and uh, Chael Sonnen twice. Yeah. Uh, his his choke out of Dan Henderson back when uh, when Dan Henderson was kind of wrecking fools at 185 pounds. Uh, so it's sort of not not only a holy shit, this guy's never lost in the UFC and he's won something like 18 straight fights. But it's also like he also looked like an alien from the future while he was doing it. Yeah, and there were times where he would just do the thing where he goes, hey, where do you want me? Where do you want this fight? Where do you, What do you think that your best chance of winning this fight looks like? And would then let it go there and then didn't kick your ass anyway. That kind of stuff, the, the style points he gets for that, uh, I think go a long way. Uh, I also, though, think that you know, especially if we're going, okay, will he be the greatest of all time? Well, I mean, I guess, what kind of a timeline are we talking about? In 100 years, will he still be? I don't know, probably not. The sport of MMA changes so rapidly since it's still so new uh, that, you know, what seemed like really, really great uh, techniques and really, really great uh, formulas for creating a fighter 10 years ago are, are laughable now. So, yeah, maybe, you know, 15, 20 years from now, there'll be somebody much better. We'll, we'll look at John Jones and be like, yeah, I can't believe we ever thought Anderson Silva was the greatest. But for right now, I just don't know who you give that to if it's not Anderson. I mean, every champion uh, has some competition that where you can go back on it and be like, yeah, that one wasn't that great. Uh, but I don't know if you, how much you can really put on the fighter on that, especially in the UFC. Yeah. It's one thing with boxing where they can do a little bit more opponent selection. In the UFC, that's tougher. Right. And the, and you would think like if not if Fedor's out of the question, then you would I guess uh right now and Anderson Silva or George St. Pierre are probably your two guys in the discussion and in this sport where style points seem to mean so much, you're you're just not gonna win that argument for George St. Pierre, even no. irregardless of the crazy knockout by Matt Sarah. Uh next question this week comes from Jason Stiegel. He writes, So, house hunters, eh? Answer me this. The people on House Hunters, domestic, have already decided which house to buy and have already purchased it before filming, right? I mean, it's impossible that they don't know which house they're going to buy, and then they and then they have the show work out like every time, isn't it? 
Also, my wife and I are convinced that there's some type of rule that every woman must wear a belt, preferably thick and higher than normal on the body in at least one segment of the show. Have I wandered into the wrong podcast? <laughs> well, we did talk about House Hunters last week as one of the hilarious jokes that you like to tell. So you're saying we brought this on ourselves? We brought this on ourselves. You told a hilarious joke about me wanting to watch House Hunters and then because I'm not an a-hole, I played along with it. Uh, now oh, here we you are. watch House Hunters. Come on. I've seen it before, if that's what you're trying to indicate. But no, I mean, we talked about this in the in the going off the air portion of the podcast yeah. uh, that and, and and Jason Stiegel probably didn't hear it. But yes, I read a thing on the internets that alleges that everybody who goes on House Hunters, both domestic and abroad, has already at least entered into a situation where they're under contract to a house. So it is, in fact, fixed. What a sham. Do you want me to read Jason Stiegel's MMA question? Oh, there's an MMA question. Okay, on to the MMA stuff. Number one, do either of you really think Daniel Cormier has a shot of beating John Jones? I just don't see it happening. I think that A, the weight cut will destroy his cardio. B, he's way too tiny to deal with Jones's youth use of length. And C, he would need to win one fight at 205 first, which I also don't see him having a, which I also see him having a hard time doing. I don't think he'll have a hard time winning just a fight at 205. Uh, and I think that if he does the weight cut properly, uh, I don't think it'll, it'll be that big of a deal for him because he's not that big of a heavyweight. You know, I, I mean, I think everybody makes a big deal about what happened to him in the Olympics, but he will tell you and Kevin Jackson, who is his coach, will tell you that he was doing that wrong. He was letting himself get way too heavy and then just, you know, basically crash dieting his way down. If he gets with somebody like Mike Dolce and does it the right way, I don't think it'll be that big of a problem. I mean, can he beat John Jones? That's a tough fight, obviously, for anybody because John Jones is is pretty awesome. Um, but, uh, you know, I think he has a better chance than uh, some of the guys we've seen Jones fight recently, certainly. I, I mean, I think he even – I like his chances better than uh, Lusty Gusty, Alexander Gustafson. Hmm. Yeah, no, I think that uh, you, you kind of said it right there that the the – hype to the to the extent that it exists around a John Jones Daniel Cormier fight uh isn't necessarily based on the fact that a lot of people think Daniel Cormier will beat John Jones but rather based around the fact that John Jones has been so dominant over other people that at this point we're kind of looking around thinking hey, who who will even have a shot here yeah. who is who is even going to have a chance to pull this off yeah. and at least that, I think Cormier might be able to yeah, pull him on to his that, back once to that extent Daniel Cormier I feel like is kind of an interesting matchup and might be the best competition we have right now if if he can get to 205 and Jones indeed decides that he wants to stay at 205 uh but but I think that Jason Stiegel's point about Daniel Cormier's size is sort of well well taken here. Jones is just so damn tall. I do think that he would have a hard time dealing with the the physical uh, tools that Jones brings to to the to the fight. Um, at this point, it seems like the only guy who's going to be able to beat John Jones might be John Jones. Uh, what with his tweeting about movie roles and whatnot. Yeah, talking an awful lot about acting, and that uh, that should scare you if you're the guy representing that fighter or involved. And in, in, I mean. Remember what happened to Lennox Lewis when he went off and did a movie and then came back and got, got knocked out by Hasim Rockman? I mean, and that was just like a small role in a movie. Imagine if John Jones gets some kind of like supporting actor role in some crap movie. Oh, God. That could be the end of his whole career. <laughs> all right. Well, let's not get hysterical. Uh, all right. Next question from Toba- uh, Tomas the Wolf. Whoa, what? Yeah. I don't know if he is related to Pedro the Wolf. He better be, or I think we're going to have a suit for gimmick infringement on our hands. <laughs> well, let's just, let's hear him out. Today, I was wondering what it takes to be a good manager in MMA. As I listened to the MMA Hour with Ed Soares, uh, and I'm not familiar with this show, the MMA Hour, but... Uh, no, I've never heard of it. Maybe we'll check it out. Uh, I couldn't think of one good thing to say about him. Wow. Whoa, ouch. Uh, he doesn't speak fluent Portuguese. He stutters all the time. His translations are horrible, and he doesn't have anything interesting to say to hype his fighters' fights. BT-dub, I am Brazilian, hence the wolf. So is it like well, all Brazilian people can claim the wolf nickname? Do you think that the wolf is like Smith or Jones here in America? I think we're going to need to hear from Pedro the Wolf on this, yeah. and I have a feeling that we will. Yes, he's out there, he's listening, and right now I'm going to go out on a limb and say he's not happy. Yeah. <laughs> I, can, I can just picture his enraged face as he pumps shells into a shotgun. The question, though, I think is well-founded. For a long time in MMA, we've been in this weird situation where there wasn't really enough money to be had to interest 
the guys that you might call, I don't know, actual sports agents. So uh, for a long time, we've had kind of a, a cavalcade of, of second rate managers. And I'm not saying Ed, Ed is one of those. I think Ed is probably one of the better managers in MMA, at least. He's certainly had the staying power and, and had the ability to keep a bunch of pretty high profile clients. So he's got to be doing something right. But, uh, you know, you, you, you don't have to look too far in MMA before you find a situation where some guy's girlfriend is running his career or a guy's uncle or his cousin or something like that. You know, you'd think if the sport continues to grow that eventually we'll get to the point where big time sports agencies are coming in and representing guys. Um, I don't know when that will be or, or what it's going to take to, to, to have that go down, but probably going to get there eventually. Yeah. Well, and as far as like what it takes to be a good agent, I mean, some of these things that, uh, Tomas the Wolf mentions, I don't know, I, I think are kind of unfair to criticize Ed Soros for that. Like he doesn't speak fluent Portuguese. I mean, he obviously speaks it well enough. I mean, I, I, I trust a Brazilian if he tells me that what he's speaking is not fluent Portuguese, but he seems to get by pretty well. I mean, the translations thing, you know, that's a, a really, I would think a, kind of a bonus of having him as your manager if you're a Brazilian fighter. Yeah, that no shouldn't kidding. be you shouldn't be relying on him as a translator like first and foremost. I mean, you want your manager to be the guy cutting your deals and negotiating your contracts. I, I mean, I think that's got to be the the thing that is most important to you if you're the fighter is that this guy can get you the opportunities, get you the sponsors and get you good prices on all that stuff. I mean, that's what I think what it takes uh, to be a good MMA manager and the rest of the stuff is kind of icing on the cake and the willingness to do a whole lot of stuff. Cause I mean, I've talked to a bunch of different managers, uh, fighters. And one of the things they say that people don't realize is that there's not like specific parameters on what falls within your purview as a manager. It's not like, you know, the guy asks you to, to, you know, go pick him up a, a Puma, sweatsuit so he can look cool at the open workouts you don't get to say it's not going to cut it anymore not my job not my job man sorry like you you know you kind of have to be willing to do whatever uh i think that's one of the things that a lot of people don't realize about the mma manager job uh and i mean also one thing that you can't discount that i know uh ed soros would tell you is one of his assets is being able to maintain a good relationship with the ufc brass even when you have to tell them no sometimes even when you ask for something that they don't think you deserve i mean he's gone through that uh with anderson silva he's gone through it with leo de machida uh in order to be able to do that but yet not uh burn the, the bridge with the ufc there it takes a little bit of diplomatic skill that's something you want out of a manager i think the next question this week comes from Matt Marty. He writes, is it just me or is Kenny Florian becoming an ever-increasing mouthpiece for Dana White in the UFC? It might be confirmation bias, but it seems like every talking point Dana brings up, Kenny reiterates almost verbatim. Recently, it has been the, the constant railing against Steve Mazzagotti as a ref, most blatantly on UFC Tonight. I agree that Maz can be pretty atrocious, but there are plenty of other refs who do a pretty bad job. Ken Flo made the assertion that he or his teammates, that if he or his teammates found out Mazzagotti was refing, they would ask for a change. Is this the only way that there will be an impact on the people who do a poor job at refing? Also, did anyone else find it ironic that Ken Flo was going crazy during a fight Forget which one was probably one that had a Brazilian fighter and ended in a submission. Well, we're really what, what, seems like we've wandered away yeah. from the path here. Oh no, that never happens with our listener mail questions. At the recent Brazil card, unusual. about a cage grab and how it was highly illegal, even though he was one of the biggest offenders of cage grabbing during his fights. Uh, I don't know, man. I, I feel like we were on to a reasonable point until we <laughs> yeah. indicted Kenny Florian okay, for let's... cage grabbing because that kind of makes it seem like. Let's back we up just and, have it out for him. Let, let's let's back up and deal with the the actual point about is Kenny Florian becoming a just basically a mouthpiece uh, for the UFC in his current role? Well, yeah, well, I mean, the guy's a uh, now a commentator who is employed by the UFC, so actually his official job is that he's a mouthpiece for the UFC. And not to say that I don't like Kenny Florian. I do like Kenny Florian. I think he's one of the one of the better guys in the industry, especially uh, a fighter to make the transition to a guy who actually sits in the broadcast booth during live events. I think that he's done a really good job uh, making that transition seem kind of seamless. At the same time, you always have to remember, uh, we talk about it a lot on the show, but these broadcasts that you watch are owned and and produced by the UFC. It's not like that there are any uh, uh, independent journalists on the live broadcast. You know, when you're, when you got John Anik and, and Kenny Florian in the booth calling a fight, those are both guys that are paid by the UFC. They're, they're going to give you what the UFC wants to give you and not 
really stray too far, you know, away from that, that those talking points. Yeah. And that is the problem, I think, of having that, that setup where, yeah, they appear on a, a network that the UFC doesn't own, but that the, is the UFC's broadcast partner. Um, but, and it's presented like on these shows, the, like the UFC Tonight show and everything. It's presented as if like they're reporting on the UFC when they're not, you know, it's like, it's not like, Oh, breaking news. So and so tells UFC to, I mean, it's the UFC's own show, you know, so it's just, you just got your producers calling up the UFC and asking like, what, what can you give us? What can we say? You know, that's not, it's not reporting. It's not like they're in any danger of reporting anything that the UFC doesn't want reported. Um, but, they want to look that way. They want to look as if it is some kind of actual like news show. So yeah, I mean, in the sense that Kenny Florian is not going to do anything or say anything that's going to jeopardize his job uh, with the UFC, which you know he does a good job of and he's a good fit for. But yeah, he he's not gonna he's not gonna go rogue here and decide that he's just like tossing out opinions or uh, or information that could get him in trouble. There's no chance of that. So yeah, that is kind of his role is to be a mouthpiece for the UFC. But you're right. He does do a good job. And he I does think do it, a good job. He lays out a good blueprint for some of these other guys who might be looking to go the same route, like like Shale Sonnen or Brian Stan, uh, who have kind of a natural aptitude for broadcasting. I mean, if they want to look at how you make that transition, they can look at Kenny Florian. He's done it pretty well. All right. Well, let's squeeze a couple more of these in. Ben, what do you got over there? Okay. Um, here's one that is insane, and I'm going to read it anyway. It comes from Courtney Jensen, who writes, Two points. First, while well-made, I disagree with every point about testosterone. The arguments just don't make sense to me. The it's-not-natural argument doesn't hold up because testosterone is 100% natural. But even if it wasn't, supplements that are 100% unnatural, e.g. polymerized glucose, are legal and fine. GMOs, legal and fine. Most of what we put in our bodies isn't natural at all, whereas testosterone is. The point about aging doesn't make sense to me because when our vision deteriorates, nobody villainizes the optometrist. We just get surgery, glasses, or contacts and fix it. When our hearing goes, we go to the audiologist. You know, like you do when you go to the audiologist. I don't get the difference. And social coercion, I have to do it to compete at this level, is a non-argument because nobody in the Western world is forced to compete at any level in anything. The too good of an ergogenic aid argument makes no sense because there are plenty of ergogenic aids that are way better and totally legal. They're just expensive. And some vague concept of fairness doesn't work because nothing else in the universe is even close to fair, beginning with genetics and ending with opportunity. If I was a cyclist who was born into a wealthy family who gave me private coaches, perfect nutrition, and a $10,000 bicycle, how is it fair that I ride against somebody who did a paper route to, avoid, to afford a Huffy? Steroids have nothing to do with the creation or exacerbation of an unlevel playing field. And at the, and the risk of harm argument makes even less sense because the incidence of steroid-related harm is like a thousandth of the rate of sport-related harm. Uh, MMA or football or whatever other sport people use steroids in is what's causing injuries, not steroids. And nobody's arguing that because the sport is a thousand times riskier than steroids, the sport should be a thousand times more illegal than steroids. I've just never heard an argument against steroids that makes sense. <sighs> yeah, probably not the one to read when we're almost out of time, but... Uh... Well, I think the answer to it is pretty short. Uh, you're just wrong. You want if you want steroids in your sport and then are working for a way backwards to justify it, then then congratulations. Uh, I think the rest of us have kind of decided that we don't want steroids in our sport. Uh, and this point that started out being about testosterone and ended up being about steroids in general, yeah, we've decided that some things are performance enhancing uh, to a, a degree that we don't want, and they are actually dangerous to the people using them. Uh, the argument that steroids don't don't hurt anybody is just absolutely not true. Um, so, yeah, Courtney Jensen, you might not be convinced by the arguments against steroids in sport, but the rest of us are. Yeah, we don't want them. To me, you know, this isn't that uncommon, actually. You hear this a fair amount, especially from MMA people saying, well, let's just let all steroids in, right? Because we want to see big guys. We want to see guys that, that do amazing things. Let's, let's just let the steroids in. And to me, in all sports, the idea of letting steroids in or having open season on steroids undoes the very fabric of what sports is. Uh, you know, if you, if you have, if you get to a situation where steroids are, are legal and all allowed, then you get to a situation where, 
the the reason that we watch sports no longer exists because it's no longer a competition between two people who are out there, you know, giving it their all with their with their physical attributes. You have a situation where it's basically going to turn into a contest of who has the best doctors, who has the best research and development team, you know, who has the most money. And God knows we don't need any more of that in sports, turning it into a situation where, uh, you know, whoever has the biggest bankroll can pay the best doctors and do the best research and come up with the best drugs, shoot the best drugs into their system and, and, and then dominate the sport. That's not what I want. I, I would rather see a situation where, uh, you know, it, it's athletes out there competing with the, with the, uh, with their own physical abilities, but that's just me. I don't know. We're out of time. Let's do just saying stuff and then we'll wrap up. Okay. Ben, what's your just saying stuff for this week? My just saying stuff is, uh, recently I discovered a video one of those videos where it takes the audio feed from one fighter's corner, uh, which I love. Those are a lot of fun. Um, but this one looks at the last three Nick Diaz fights against GSP, BJ Penn, and Carlos Condit. So it's mainly a lot of him, uh, his brother, and Caesar Gracie yelling stuff from the corner. And I'm just saying, whatever you're imagining this video to be like from just my description of what it is, you're absolutely right. And it's awesome. And it's way more awesome, actually, than yeah. you are imagining. You have to watch it. You can find the link. Uh, I put it up on my Twitter chat. I'll probably put it up on the, the website. Uh, but it is unbelievably awesome, uh, in part because this, the Gracie Diaz camp seems really fixated on motherfuckers having too much water on them during fights, uh, which they seem to think uh, makes it just impossible for the punches not to slide off. Uh, and... Uh, just they seem delightfully paranoid about every little thing. It's a lot of fun. I'm just saying it's exactly what you think it would be like to be in Nick Diaz's corner. Just saying. Uh, ben, this week I'm just saying some stuff about Rampage Jackson saying that part of his deal with Viacom is going to involve him being in movies. Oh, for real? Yeah. And so I just want to read this quote from Rampage Jackson and then respond to it just a little bit. Here's his quote. The first movie I'm doing is one that I wrote. I think the script is really good. I let a couple of people read it, and they were like, wow. A lot of people... <laughs> I bet they were. I bet they were like, wow. A lot of people think it could be kind of a type of MMA movie that people could really attach themselves to and maybe make a couple sequels from it. Ooh, a couple sequels. I just want you guys to know that I'm sitting down with a professional writer, somebody that can help me write it and bring it to life a little bit more because I'm not a writer. Huh. Now, Ben, <laughs> what if I told you, Ben... I'm thinking about becoming a prof professional fighter. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about maybe fighting for Bellator. Okay. I went to a couple practices and people were like, wow. <laughs> so, you know, I think I'm going to go after this. I'm going to give it my all. And hopefully I'm going to have a long and successful career as an MMA fighter. But I want you to know, in case you have any doubts, I'm going to sit down with some professionals, some real coaches, and they're going to help me out because... Frankly, I've never been in a fight before, but I'm excited <laughs> for this. I think it's going to be really good, and I think that uh, it's, it, this is going to be my future. Can I be honest with you? Yeah, what would you tell me? I've seen some heavyweights in Bellator you could beat. <laughs> all right, cool, man. So now I'm all in. No, that's fucking crazy, man. I don't understand why people think that they can do that with writing. It happens all the time. People just like, oh, I'm, I'm going to write a movie. I'm going to write a book. Uh, this week, I'm just saying, stop it. Stop doing that. Stop saying that. You are making yourself look foolish, and you were also <laughs> insulting all of the other people that actually make a living that way. Just saying. Just saying. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week. We'll be back next week with a more, I would assume, uh, traditional podcast organizational system with rounds and what have you. As for right now, we're done. We're through. We're out. Hey, Chad, remember when you showed me your screenplay and I was like, wow. Yeah, yeah, man. I, you know, that made me feel really good. Well, I don't see. That's what I wanted to talk to you about. I feel like when it came off the first time, uh, that my tone might have been wrong. Because I said, wow. And what I meant to say is, wow. Okay, well, that makes sense.